0: Today's scripture comes from Ephesians 5, chapter five, verses twenty-one through thirty-three. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husbands, it, for the husband is the head of that wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his body and is himself its Savior. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves <clears throat> his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are, we are members of this body. Therefore, a man shall leave, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord.
1: Welcome back, uh, college students. Uh, love seeing some of you guys come home. And um, love this time of the year as some of our, our younger brothers and sisters come back to San Jose and um, join us back in worship and in fellowship. It's great to have you. We are in a series on, um, on singleness and marriage, and this is part four of our series. The first three messages were especially kind of uh, um, geared to address singleness, and um, this week we're going to shift gears we're going to focus more on marriage. In fact, for the rest of this series, it's going to be about marriage. And this very important passage of the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 5, um, verses 21 through 33. We're going to be sitting in, these pa- in this passage for quite some time. And this is probably the most meaty and the most significant portion of scripture um, on teaching on marriage. It's Marriage teaching is in multiple places in the Bible but this is probably maybe the central place, and if you would like to if you would want to know about it, this is a place that's to that needs to be unpacked um for some of you who are single, you may be wondering, um well, I guess now, maybe I don't need to come <laughs> no, not true um now, if you're single and if you if you think you're going to be married this is this is a good time to learn um There are so many misconceptions and so much confusion in our culture about what is marriage. Our, our culture is literally trying to redefine marriage and it's not going to work because it—it's marriage is not something that man invented so man can't change it. It is not a human institution. it is a divi- It has divine origin. God invented it and we have to do it God's way and it, doing it God's way is what will cause marriages to flourish. And so um, I hope you would want to hear this and even if you don't get married for 5, 10, 15 years from now, you will constantly be around people who are married. Your friends will be getting married. Um, your friends probably maybe already are married. And of course, you certainly have many older brothers and sisters. And maybe you'll even be hanging out with your parents. And maybe you can even gently say a thing or two to them if they might be even slightly open to hearing <laughs> your position. Because <laughs> you learn something in this series that could possibly bless your parents marriage and wouldn't that be wonderful okay so let's get into it today the definition and engine of marriage um, just first we're going to just tell you what is marriage and then we're going to tell you what powers marriage so um, part in three parts part 1 covenant and union marriage is a covenant marriage is covenantal and some of you're going What is that? I will get to that. Um, Part two, part two, what is the engine of marriage? It is self-giving. It is a self-giving commitment. It is a commitment to give yourself. That is what you're doing. And we're going to talk about the most fundamental problem in marriage, and that is self-centeredness. That is the, the core cancer and problem in every marriage. And in a good marriage, they're fighting that back. In a bad marriage, they're losing that fight. All right? And so that's what's going on. Um, part two self giving commitment versus the central problem of self centeredness. And part three covenantal self giving as the highest love. I want to talk about what is the highest love. And um, it's tasted in marriage. And so um, let's get into it. Part one. I would like to direct your uh, your attention right here to verse verse thirty one. So if you are, if you have your uh, your phone <laughs> or your uh, or your Bible in front of you, verse thirty one. This is what it says. Therefore, I mean, he gives all this instruction on marriage. Blah 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 blah. Be like this. Don't do this. Be like this. But then he says this: A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one fat flesh. This is um this is in a nutshell the Bible's vision and picture of marriage, and um, and it is, it is absolutely at its core covenantal. Now, some of you are like, "Okay, uh, just a moment." I'll tell you exactly what that means in just a moment. Um, let me t- say something about this this verse. This is from Genesis chapter two twenty five. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, the, uh, God has, God performs the first, first marriage ceremony in um, Genesis 2.18. He says, it's not good that the man, Adam, is by himself. Uh, we're going to try to find a companion for him. It wasn't a dog. <laughs> the dog may be considered man's best friend, but not according to God. Man's best friend was yet to be created. And so he says, I'm going to create the one who should be. His deepest, very best friend, and that was a woman. And then in two twenty-five, this is exactly the words that was said: "A man shall leave his father and mother, and will be united, will be united to his wife, and they shall become, shall, who shall be held fast, who shall be united." I, I told you in a previous message that's like to say he will be glued to her, right? Um, it's a, it's a, it's being held fast permanently. It's like crazy glue for life, okay? And, um, and this is a definition. And if, this, if you don't see, this is uh, in Genesis 2.25. This is in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus cites this when he talks about marriage. Um, here's how he puts it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? I mean, Did you hear that? This is from the words of the Son of God. Um, I know it's very controversial in our day-to-day. This is one of the reasons why, if you are a Bible-believing, Orthodox Christian, we can't really agree with our culture when they say that a man and a man can be married. That is just not true. A woman and a woman cannot be married. Jesus said so, right? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and then said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast with exactly that verse. Um, what is this saying? And I'm gonna un- we're gonna unpack this in this seemingly simple passage. Uh, a man shall leave his father and mother. We're gonna talk. There's a there's about priority of marriage. There's about the meaning of marriage. There's a message about the permanence of marriage. There's something about the purpose and the goal of marriage. All these things are right in that verse. And so, if any of you ever want to know, even what just the, the fundamental biblical understanding of marriage, you can find it here in this verse, 531, Ephesians 531, um, Genesis 2.25, or Matthew chapter 19, this is verses 4 through 6. And then he goes on to say this, this is something else that you may hear at, at a lot of weddings, Is and this is what Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. You can't pull them apart. That is how profound this union is. Now, let me get into a definition. First, a definition. I just told you that a marriage is a covenant. It is covenantal. What does that mean? And let me put it to you this way. A marriage is a public, legal, binding promise under the highest authority. Let me say that one more time. It is a public, legal, binding promise promise under the highest authority. Now, let me make a, a few. Why are all those pieces matter? Number one, it's public. If you say to your girlfriend or some per, or, or, or to your boyfriend while you're on a date, you're my soulmate, <laughs> and my whole life I've just been waiting for you, and we will be together, and we'll just love each other for the rest of my life. I just promise to love you for the rest of my life. And then you go around and says, "You know, deep down, I know we're just married in our hearts to one another. Let me tell you, you're not married in your heart, you're not married. <laughs> Maybe you have very good intentions towards your girlfriend, towards your lover, but you're not married. Hmm. Let's say you meet somebody very special, and this is very common these days. People think,, um, well, you know, I, I'm, we're going to ramp up the commitment here, so it's been going really good for us for these last three, four, five, six months, right? so why don't we move in together? That's a pretty—that's a pretty serious step. It seems like, doesn't that mean we're going to share the same space? We're going to share the same bed. We're going to share uh, we are going to share all the bills. We're going to eat eat together a lot of times. Doesn't that seem basically like marriage? that's not marriage? Hmm. Only these things may be in a marriage. After a husband and wife, I hope they still say to each other five, ten years, and not not only on your anniversary. Okay, (laughs) Um, I hope you will say you're my soulmate, and I'll love you, and I love you, and I have loved you, and I will love you until I die. I hope you say that. I hope you intend that. I hope you feel that it's not a marriage until you have a public. It is legal, and it is binding. It is legally binding. It is publicly binding. Everybody sees you this way. It is to, to everybody in the society, they don't just think you're a nice guy and there's your lover. No, you're the husband. You're the wife. That's your husband. That's your wife. It has been pronounced with every authority. It has been pronounced with the authority in, uh, with just publicly with all the people who know you. It has been pronounced by the state, by the government with all the people who are around you, and most importantly of all, it has been pronounced by God. Now, let me say a little something about this. Our society thinks that a marriage is basically two people get together, and then they make a promise, and then they sign on the dotted line. That is not a covenant. That is a contract. And what's the difference? A contract is when two people will... They'll sign, and they'll seal their name, and um, it, it's basically a promise between two parties. It may it may have the seal of the law such, such that you can say, well, if I don't do this, you can sue me. I'll owe you X such and such amount of money. There are certain other things in the law that within our society that says this type of a contract is binding. But this is, this is, not, a, this is not a covenant. And let me tell you why. Because in a covenant... There's something that's going on that a contract is something always between people. It's just man and man. It can be down to two people, it could be two people plus the government. You can bring the lawyers into it because now we gotta bring we're fighting about this thing because you didn't fulfill your, your stipulations, your promises. You said you would do this, I said I would do this, that's the contract. It looks like a marriage, that seems like what a marriage is, but that's not enough. Here's why. Because as long as it just stays between man and man, there's always going to be this problem. The problem is if one of them is more powerful than the other, significantly more powerful. That is, if one has a million dollars and the other one just, say, makes a middle class living, guess what happens? The one that has a million dollars can go (laughs) hire the $500, an hour lawyer, and then... They could just win and break the contract and send the more and send the less powerful party off pretty much at a loss. And what you have there is in a contract, as long as it's just between man and man, whoever is more powerful can essentially oppress and lie and cheat the other party. That's what happens in contracts. Isn't that what happens in our society? Now, in ancient times, they understood this. In in modern times, we don't seem to understand that if you take God out of all binding promise-keeping, then actually all that really leaves is to the goodwill of the one who has more power. Now, in this day and age, this is how we fight it when we have a contract. I make a promise, you make a promise, I got better lawyers than you. Oh, wait a second, the law is still on your side Oh, you know what? I'm really rich, and I have really other rich friends. You know what I'm going to do? I'll just change the rules. (laughs) I'll go to the legislature. I'll get my powerful lawyers. We'll raise up a whole bunch of money, and we'll change the laws so that the rules will favor me, and then I can just break the contract. That's exactly what's happened. I don't know if you know this, but in... um, in America, we used to have a more covenantal understanding of marriage. When the society had a more biblical understanding of this most fundamental relationship, if you, were to, if you wanted to get out of marriage, and there are biblical ways that um, a marriage can... Um, a marriage, a, a, There are such a biblical grounds for divorce, but they're, they're not big grounds. It is hard to get a divorce... <laughs> Under God in the Bible, we can talk about that some other time. Or if some of you have any questions, you can go ahead. I don't want to address all of that. It's a complex ish- uh, issue. You can you can try sending a text to that email address. All right, um, and we'll tr- and I can we can try to answer that. But um, it's not easy. And when the when our society had a more covenantal understanding of marriage, you had to prove you had to prove that your spouse was hurting you in, the, in such an egregious manner that the marriage can be, can, be, um, can, be, uh, can be separated out. And so you have to prove something like abuse, abandonment, adultery, these types of things. But you can't, we now have this category, um, and I'm not saying that this isn't a real category, but we have this category today that people abuse all the time, and it's called irreconcilable differences. And whenever I hear that it says we divorce on the base of irreconcilable differences, I mean, I mean, like you mean because you are a man and she is a woman and you can't make that work, like, like one hundred percent of every marriage. <laughs> irreconcilable difference is not a reason to get divorced because every single marriage has <laughs> irreconcilable differences. I don't know, I've never met one that doesn't have that, and yet now we have. So the people in our society that essentially want to get rid of their spouses and largely this movement in our culture over the last 30 or 40 years have been by powerful men trying to get rid of their wives for the most part. And they use this loophole in the law which is now not even considered a loophole it's just considered the law called irreconcilable differences and then they invented another category in our culture called no-fault divorce. You don't have to prove that your spouse is, is literally killing you inside. And so now there's actually justifiable reason to get divorced. But, so now, it was those, there's no fault. And so now, if you marry somebody, and here's the way it works in the law. I'm not, I'm not trying to scare any of you, but this is how our law works. This is how the laws work in most of the states in America. Now it's called no-fault divorce. If you want to stay married to your spouse... But your spouse wants to get rid of you, you can't stop it from happening. You can't. That's how it works. No fault. I just don't want to be with this person anymore. Irreconcilable differences. It's over. It's a contract, not a covenant. This has been the corruption of the way marriage works in our culture, and it's a very serious problem. Now, in ancient times, they didn't. They didn't need to bother with. Uh, they didn't need to bother with. With, uh, with lawyers. This is just the way. It gen- mo- in most societies, the man was generally a lot more powerful than the woman. And if he wanted to get rid of her, you know what he did? He just kicked her out of the house and said, I'm divorced and that's it. It's over. This is still not uncommon in lots of places in the world. And this is an egregious evil. This is a horrible egregious. It's usually from the man to the woman, but now we're so equal in America, the woman could do that to the man. (laughs) Uh, But regardless, it is an egregious evil. What is the difference between a contract and a covenant? Ancient people and lots of other people around the world, they realize that if human beings are going to be deeply bound to one another... I will promise to bless you in a certain way, and I can't get out of this promise. You will promise to be loyal to me in a certain way, and you can't just get rid of me because it's now inconvenient to you. In order that to happen, it cannot simply just be a promise between man and man, woman and woman, man to woman, or even with the government. What it must be is this must be bound under heaven itself. There are many people, um, other societies, that aren't Christian, they are not biblical. They get this. They understand this requires. So this is what they do. They usually have some type of a ceremony, and it is a sacred ceremony. They know that we need someone or something or some binding power that is supernatural to say these promises that we make to each other are really serious business. If we break them, and here's the thing that makes a covenant, all right? We all love the part. I'll do this, and you do this, and then we get blessed. Okay. okay, Obviously, if there's no extra blessing out of it, why would we want to do this? Why would you want to make a really serious, binding, public, legal promise under God, or at least under heaven, uh, to, um, depending on some other religions? And I think they're wiser than our secular culture by understanding there has to be a fundamental different way. Because that's what covenant is. A covenant is two parties— With a third party, the third party is the supernatural. And here's what, there's usually something like this. The part that makes it a covenant is that if you break the covenant, you will incur the curse of God. You hearing this? You incur the curse of God. If you go to your wife and you say, you know what? You're just not very pretty to me anymore, and I kind of like the girl at work. And then you said a cheat on your wife, and then you throw her away. Let me tell you something. You deserve to burn in hell. And when you said those vows publicly before God, not just your neighbors, everybody looks at you and goes, you deserve to burn in hell. For some reason, we just think that since we can't see God, I guess, you know, it doesn't really matter anymore, which is a really, really foolish way of looking at life. We, in a secular society, we have no fear of that which is supernatural, but supernatural is very real. <laughs> and other societies even get this. Even though they don't believe in God, they realize, wow. So they would have a ceremony such as this. They would take an animal. They would cut the animal like this. Not like this. They would cut the animal in half, like this way. So let's say that you take a cow. <laughs> you take, because it's usually... You would like to take cattle. A cattle is a symbol of serious wealth and sacrifice. So they would cut this cattle like this, straighten up. It's pretty gross, isn't it? All the guts and all the blood. (laughs) And so, when two people wanted to make a very serious, they would stand this and they would stand up and they would make vows under God. They were saying, "I'm sealing myself to you under God. God will bind us together." And then there's says, okay, now let's walk through this together. Then they walk through the pieces in between. And what is that symbolically saying? If I break covenant, may God rip me apart like this animal. That's what you're saying. Now you got a covenant. That's marriage. <laughs> Some of you are like, Wow. I better never get married. That scares the heck out of me. (laughs) That is scary. It it should scare you. But let me say something. If if people took this type of promise and this commitment that seriously, don't you think um, people would treat each other better five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Don't you think children would feel a lot more secure? Don't you think... That there would be a whole lot less depression in our society, addiction in our society, suicide in our society. There's tremendous anger, depression, addiction in our society because kids say, Mom and Dad don't love me anymore. What is secure in life? Are there any promises secure in life? I thought they were supposed to be together till they died. I guess nothing is secure. Truly, we are alone. They don't say it quite that way. They just feel it that that way. And then as they go through life, guess what happens? It is a curse not just upon you. It is a curse just upon your wife. It is a curse on your kids. You just cursed your kids. And then you just cursed your grandkids. And if your grandkids rise up and say to you, you're a horrible person, look what you did to me, well, that's what's happening, actually. It's happening. You can listen to our music. Um, there's pop music, lots of pop music, with tremendous anger toward parents for ripping their hearts apart. So it's not like I'm trying to just scare. It's this is the curse. And it's not like God has to come down and go, I'm going to strike you all down. Sin has its own has, has, has its own, uh, you, you bear what it costs. You reap from what you sow. If you reap from evil, if you sow evil, you will reap evil. If you're a covenant breaker, you will reap curse. We will reap curse individually, as a family, as a whole society. And our whole society is paying. We're paying for this. Since everybody now knows that no other promises matter, there's no other binding things, we can all just get the lawyers and can just get the heck out of this thing. Everybody now just feels afraid. So only way we can, it's like, I just need to get power. I need to just get money. I need to be able to afford my own lawyers because as soon as somebody screws me over, I got to get mine. And now we live in a horrific society where that's it. And even if you're like, I'm comfortable, it doesn't feel horrific to me, but are you lonely? Genesis chapter 2.18, it is not good that a man is alone. It is not good that a woman is alone. It is not good that you are alone. We were never meant to be this way. So that's the definition. Let me give you one more point about this before we move into part two. Um, In a covenant, you are making a commitment, a lifelong binding commitment, as Jesus says, let no one separate. What God has brought together, let no one separate. And so, um, what is happening here? In, when you make this commitment, you aren't just committing for what you get out of it, you are committing for what you will give to it. Every, every marriage, a lot of people are like, okay, I, I just love this person, and I'm just so in love with this person, I'm always going to have this feeling, and so now let's m- get married. That's not what's happening here. You aren't promising about how you feel today. Actually, you are making a commitment to what you will do. You are talking about love. The Bible never thinks that love is really a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a covenantal committed action. That's what you're doing. And so in the covenant, you're not promising to have a certain feeling. I will love you for the rest of my life. Let me just tell you something. There are days when my wife has a feeling of love for me in the morning. <laughs> and then she has a feeling of real, like, you are so annoying. <laughs> and it would be really nice if you would go away for two hours in the afternoon. So that's just in one day. <laughs> and then she comes back to tepid in the, in the evening. <laughs> all right? So it's sort of like hot, cold, lukewarm. And, and th- that's just in one day. All right? And that's, um, of course, you know, my wife is much better than me. I, I go through cycles of this. Um, but but that, that, that's because I'm, I'm a bad husband sometimes. And so usually I don't feel this way toward my wife. But I, it's because I'm bad. And so she goes, okay, so she gets this, this face. And this kind of happens. You can't promise how you're going to feel. It is not a covenantal promise. Love is covenantal means it is a commitment, a binding promise of how you will act. You're making a commitment, a promise of how you will act tomorrow, five years from now, 20 years from now. How? When in sickness and or in health or riches or in poverty, for better or for worse. Aren't these the vows? These are absolutely biblical vows. So it is a promise, not so much a feeling. It is a promise of, of action. Um, so many of these, uh, in, in a lot of my preparations for these messages, I've been re-listening. Um, to the the nine sermons from Timothy Keller on marriage, which he gave back in 1999, and this is sort of my my go-to place. My my my, there's so many profound nuggets in these um, sermons that sometimes I don't I forget what's like mine and what's his, and so I'm probably plagiarizing Tim Keller all throughout this series. <laughs> okay, so let me just put it out there. Don't like you know. Bring me up on charges because I'm plagiarizing Tim Keller, but like I've long since forgotten now what's his and what's mine because what I've like taken from him so much it's become me. All right, but this is one of the things he says: when you make a covenantal promise, you're making an appointment with yourself in the future. That's what you're saying. In the future, I won't feel like being there for you, my wife, but I'll be there even when I don't feel like it. Even when it's hard, I promise I will be there. That's the promise. That's part one. Definition of marriage: it is a union which is covenantal. Part two: let's talk about um, let's talk about the central problem of marriage. Uh, what is the fundamental problem of marriage? It is self-centeredness. Now, the the passage which gets to this is, if you look at verse 21, and and I do agree with Tim Keller, and he's not the only one, lots of other um, Bible interpreters, lots of uh, biblical scholars, when they look at this passage, it looks like the teaching on marriage really starts there in verse 22, and I guess it kind of technically does. But in verse 21, he has this, Paul says this thing, "...submit to one another out of reverence for Christ." And then for the next several discussions, then he has a discussion about marriage. Then he has a discussion about parenting, um, about how you're supposed to treat your children. And then he has a discussion about, actually about masters and slaves, and and since today we don't do masters, we talk about those who have authority over you, like your boss, or those who are in leadership over, over you, rightful leadership in certain institutions. Like, say, how about our president? You know, many of you might not like our president, but we have to submit to our president, and so here's this word: there is a proper form of submission that happens in marriage. And when I'm not, I'm not even talking about um, the husband is the head and the wife is supposed to submit. I'm not even talking about headship here. We will cross that very, very deeply unpopular subject. All right, and a little bit later in this message, but that's not what we're we even talking about here. In a marriage, a husband is supposed to submit to his wife. A wife is supposed to submit to her husband. And what do we mean by submit here? Is that means somebody else has some rightful ownership and control over you, which you must give in to. That's what we're talking about here. When you get married, you're saying somebody else has a claim on me, and I must submit properly to this person, and I'm making this promise for the rest of my life. And um, this word, submit, let me me ask you just this little question. The last time you were out to lunch with your friends, did this word ever come up? Hey, do you submit to? When was the last time the average American uses the word submit in in a regular conversation with their friends? Probably almost never. (laughs) Why? Because we hate this word. (laughs) We hate, hate, hate. Don't you hate this word? I, I'm a pastor, and I'm a holy man. Okay, I mean, I'm trying to be a holy man. And I hate this word. And um, and I'm supposed to be a professional Christian, and we just hate this word. In America, we really want to believe, I have ownership of my life. I'm in control of my life. Other people don't have a right to tell me what to do. Not true. Huh. Not true. If you tell your wife, you have no right to say this to me, Just you know what? wives if your husband ever says that to you you just say wrong <laughs> you can just say that's true the bible god says i do and of course that goes the same too if your wife ever says that to you husbands all right or future husbands they absolutely do and what is what are we bumping up against here we're bumming up against this. I'm centered in my own life. I'm the boss of my own life. My life is my life. I have my rights. This is my privacy. This is all the language of self centeredness. We think our life is about, about A number one here. Um, Martin Luther, one of the, the great pastors in history, uh, one of the great theologians in history, he had a name for this. And um, I, you might have heard me talk about this if you've been in, in our church for a while. In the Latin, he calls it the incurvatus of the soul. Huh. You know what this means? He says that God was taken out of the picture. So then our soul curved in on itself. So in the middle of the day, when you're bored, do, do you think about how, how you're going to win the lottery? In the middle of the day, when you're bored, do you uh, dream about your perfect lover? In the middle of the day, when you're bored, do you think about how great it would be if your life would just be a little bit more perfect? You're practicing incurvatus of the soul. You don't even have to try. The whole, the deep, is the deepest problem. So it isn't surprising that actually the deepest problem in marriage is actually the deepest problem in life. We're always doing, in, in another, in one sense, this is just sin in a really, really practical, manifested way. And so, um, let me say a couple things about this. If you can't defeat self-centeredness, your marriage will break. From the very first day you get married, you're in a fight. Not with your spouse, with yourself. The first person you must fight the most is you. (laughs) And... Um this is the way Tim Carroll likes to put it. I think this is a great way of saying it. When you ha- it's not an if when <laughs> when you get married what's going to happen is you're going to, you married a person who isn't this pristine, perfect person for you, because that's what you thought, right? Because that's why you married this person. This person is just perfect for me. And unlike all these other schmucks out there, I'm going to find the actual person who's perfect for me. And so our marriage is going to be better than everybody else's. We will certainly above be above average. And then we won't have these fights that all my friends have. Let me tell you, that's completely nonsense. You're just That's like the devil telling you the craziest lies. And almost everybody I know believes this lie. They don't say it out loud. If you've ever thought this, let me just tell you, you've probably thought this multiple times. And all of those of you are single, you're thinking it now. Get rid of it. You're just completely out of touch with reality because you are completely underestimating how deeply self-centered you are and how deeply self-centered the other person is. So right after you get married, what's going to happen is you have this dream, and you have this all the ways that you like things to be, all the all the habits you've made so you, that your life is comfortable. And then in the past, you may have had a brother or a sister who've tried to tell you you're selfish like this. You always got to be like this. And then and then every time they tell you, you just don't listen. Maybe you had a best friend or a roommate and they tell you in various different ways except they don't usually tell to you as meanly <laughs> or as often as your as your siblings did i mean we hear this in our house all the time at least two or three times a week there's some yelling that happens inside the house and it usually goes something like this you're per- you're bad you're always like it's usually always you're always you're never you're always you're never you n- always do this you never do this and it goes from every kid to every other kid and they do this and guess what they never listen <laughs> They never listen. That's something oh, so annoying. And sometimes you can start, I just go, "Shut up, shut up!" I go, "I don't want to hear it anymore because I know it's impossible to solve." So I just tell them to shut up. <laughs> like it happened just uh, y- just yesterday over dinner. The, he started it, and then he and then of course like actually like she did something. Hudson got ticked. He said it, and then he said it again, and then he said it again, and then she got mad, and then she started arguing back, and I'm like, "This is the stupidest argument ever." <laughs> And so I just went, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> this is the stupidest argument ever. <laughs> now, of course, and then I could say, he's right. He, he, she's right. You're they're both right. You should listen. Never listen. <laughs> never listen. And you've been doing this your whole life. And then you're going to have a roommate. And then you won't listen. But after you get married, you've never been more intimate, never been more close for the purpose of marriage is that a man and his wife shall be naked before one another and not be ashamed. So you can be kind of a naked in front of your brother or your sister or even your mom or your dad or even your roommate, but then you cover up your shame in some way. In one very profound way and very regular way is incurvatus of the soul and we just close our ears up. <laughs> But what's going to happen after you get married is your spouse says, you're like this. You're always like this. And he says, well, that's the language. Please try not to use that always, never language. It doesn't work. It's a, pretty bad in marriage. Just a quick little tip. But you're going to feel this. You're going to hear this. And then they're going to say it back to you. And at this moment, and it might happen on day one, by the way, <laughs> If you're lucky, it'll happen like three months later, but it'll probably happen like two weeks later. And then it'll happen again, and then it'll happen again. And then maybe your marriage will get really tired and you won't say this to each other. You're just thinking it. But when this happens, when? Here's what you have to think. The deepest problem is my self-centeredness. Maybe I actually should listen I know it feels like if they just understood you a little better. Another thing I, I often hear, in okay, I've, I've heard so many different couples say this, what we really have is a communication problem. Let me tell you something. You don't have a communication problem. You do have a communication problem, but that's actually a minor problem. You know the real problem is? You have a listening problem. <laughs> it's not a communication problem. You have a listening problem. (laughs) And your ears are so stuffed up with the incurvatus of the soul, you're so, like, stuck on yourself. If they would only just understand this deep, deep, deep thing about me, then things would just be all better. So if you just got this deep, deep thing about me, it would just get all better. It's you, you. It's really you. (laughs) And if you ever have a fight... And then you say you're sorry, and then you go, I'm sorry. And then your very next thing is about what's, if, if they would just fix how they see you. Let me tell you, you just blew that fight. <laughs> you didn't get anywhere close to making up. And you didn't have an advance in your marriage. You're losing the fight with yourself. There has to be a serious fight with yourself. when your spouse says that to you. Okay, you're going to feel like they're 1% right and you're 99% right, you're, they're only 1% right. I'm 99% right, or whatever that number is. Maybe you're a little bit more holy than that. You give them 30%. <laughs> they're 30%, or I'm 70%, but that's still 70%. If, can't they fix the 70%? The 70% is more important than the 30%, right? Why don't you fight the 30%? And if you fight the 30%, you're really fighting 90%. Really. That's the real truth. I remember listening to Keller say this many, many years ago. He said something like this. He says, when two people marry each other, and then they see that their own self-centeredness is the deepest problem, then there is tremendous potential for an absolutely unbelievable marriage. If both of them will do it. Now, of course, this is, he said, then he said, there's only three permutations, okay? One possibility, husband and wife, they both approach marriage this way. Second possibility, neither approach the marriage this way. That marriage is doomed. Doomed. (laughs) Just, it's like doomed. (laughs) Until there's repentance. You could do that for five years, ten years, and then somebody repents. Okay, now you have a chance. But here's the third possibility. The third possibility is only one chooses to do this but the other won't. The other one's like, it's always you. (laughs) But you decide, under God, it's more me. You actually believe what I'm saying right now, which, by the way, is from the Bible. You actually believe this, and you approach your marriage habitually. Every time your spouse says, it's you, you go, it really is me. I'm going to work on this. If only one does this, you know what Keller said? This is amazing, and and I've seen this to be true. The possibilities are still tremendously great that you can have a really wonderful marriage. Why? Because if you want to change your marriage, if you do what my siblings, you know, with my kids do with each other as siblings, it won't work. But if you change first, you're in one flesh, you're in such intimate proximity. If you change or repent first, guess what will happen? Your spouse will figure it out. No, they're really dense they won't figure it out. No 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 they are they absolutely I promise you I promise you they will figure it out. <laughs> they will see it now maybe they won't see it right away because you've been you've been a, being a jerk to your wife for so long she, she doesn't believe it you, you, you change and then you can you I've, I've changed for three months and she's and so it, it won't it's like maybe you've been a jerk for so long she won't see it for like a year hmm. maybe. It's possible, but I promise you, your spouse will see it absolutely, and then they'll soften. And you know what's happening when that happens? The Holy Spirit, as you are changing, is changing your spouse. The one of the most powerful fundamental. We'll talk about this in previous, in in later weeks. Powerful ways to change your spouse is for you to change. (laughs) It's for you to change. Let me say one more thing and we'll go to close my message, right? Um, all in our life, we always think that if you're in charge, so I want to give you one thing to help you push back against your self incurvatus of the soul, I'm in charge, it's all about me, is I have all these choices. These are my choices. And as soon as you get married, your spouse starts <laughs> kind like of you know, like infringing on some of those choices. In fact, says, how come you always want to watch ESPN for 20 hours a week? It's like, gosh, that's one of my choices. I, it would be, I would like to be one of my choices, but that, that's not going to work with, with, with uh, the woman named Grace Park. Okay? It probably ain't going to work with almost any woman, by the way, guys. Right? And so, you know what you decided to do? On the day you chose to marry her, you said, all these other women who could be potential choices, I forego. <laughs> Marriage is limiting choices. You're giving up choices. And more and more, you're saying, Not all my choices. I thought I had five options, but I'm going to start choosing only two options, the two, which will walk with you. If you want to get deeper and deeper into marriage, just stop being stuck on having to have all this mastery of choices we are deeply stuck and fixated like a drug to always have choices and options, choices and options. But actually in the Bible, the deepest freedom, this is really wild, the deepest freedoms is to start to let go of choices so that your one mind starts as this one person whom I deeply love, a beauty will start to come out. I choose you. In fact, I only have one choice, and I'm happy to choose that one choice, you. You. And so in your heart, you always have like five or six choices. Five or six, it's always about me. Five or six choices. Just start saying, I'm just going to just start tossing some of them out. And if that's hard for you, well, it's hard for everybody. Wow, this isn't really making marriage not sound fun, is it? <laughs> I know it sounds like really hard work. It is really hard. But actually, if you start to do this, you know what will happen? This will happen, right? You had five choices, and then you start getting rid of one. Then you got rid of another one. You always used to swear and smoke. So you got rid of that one. <laughs> you always used to use your time for yourself. You got rid of that one. <laughs> you always used to choose your movies, your preferences. You start, you, you started bending on that one. You start doing this thing and you know what's going to sure you're doing bit by bit two people who thought they were ever, are starting to become one beautiful one flesh. And every time they get together they start to fill each other. And inside that space, and I hope every marriage gets to this place, um, my wife and I have tasted this place. It's heavenly. That's how it works. Let me close this message. Um, The deepest freedom comes in letting go. (laughs) Um, Some of you are thinking, gosh, pastor, this is really hard. Um, This is, the power of marriage is to give of yourself and to not always make it about yourself. It's called covenantal self-giving. This is what marriage is. Marriage is covenantal self-giving to this one person that you're deeply united to. And you're like, wow, pastor, this is so scary and it's really hard. And if you're scared, it's okay. It's okay. Let me say something else too. And some of you are going, I'm married and I'm totally like screwing this up. I don't even know if I can do this. It's okay. Because not only is it hard, let me just help you by saying this, and I hope this will help you. It's impossible. It's impossible to do on your own. When we chose ourselves and not to let God be God. God be our worship, God be our glory, God be our Lord. When we chose this, we're constantly fixated on this, this, this little hellish place where we're curved in on ourselves, because that's what hell is ultimately going to be. It's just you and your absolute loneliness without yourself, with no hope of something better. I think that's going to be the ultimate thing of hell, the deepest, most profound, terrible loneliness with the terribleness of you. But so it's impossible to do this unless you get divine help. And is there divine help? Absolutely. <laughs> it says in verse 21 submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the pathway. The Bible assumes that if you're going to have the right relationship between parent-child and or between boss and employee, and of course certainly between husband and wife, it isn't something that we just can do. Because actually this problem of the incurvatus of the soul, it's the most intense problem. It's just the most intensely felt because marriage is the most intense relationship. Do you notice that throughout our whole society, we really are terrible at relationship? We're terrible at relationship in every kind of way. But it especially is manifest in this most important of relationships. And the reason God invented marriage, and if we would do marriage right, uh, okay, uh, um, let me me say this. If Christians would do marriage God's way, the whole society can change. I'm not kidding. The whole society can change. If we do this one thing right... (laughs) the whole society can change. If we do this one thing right, our kids will change, our families will change, men and women will become happier, there'll be this beautiful sense of trust and unity, there'll be this thing that we long for called community. Do you know what marriage is? Marriage is the most fundamental, the most important, the most powerful unit of community. We can't do community, and the reason we all long for community is because we're all a bunch of selfish, incurvatists of the soul, self-centered ruling, lonely people. But to this, God made marriage, and then he gave help. Let me put it to you this way, to close this message. I said this to you last week. Let me say it a little bit differently. This to say. You want somebody to go before who will know you to the deepest place, who will always give their self not insist upon their own way. They will take your hurt. They will take your weakness. They'll take it upon themselves and hurt, even when it's not their own fault. And they'll give you blessing, even when you give them curse. And thus, that's how that person takes away the curse. That person's name is Jesus. And when he redeemed us this way, he didn't just do it on the cross... So that it would happen on the cross, and then that's it. He did it so that he could begin to take away every curse that we break, because we're curse and We're covenant breakers. He came to fulfill covenant, to make it filled and heavenly. And then he didn't leave us without help. He gives us his spirit. And every time you look toward Jesus in the gospel, and this will be the central meaning of marriage, how you will fight the fight of your deep self-centeredness as a husband or as a wife. When you fight this fight, and you do it remembering that Jesus fought it for you, the Holy Spirit will be right there. Hmm. I don't feel him. You don't have to feel him. He's there. Hmm. The Holy Spirit will be right there, and we be welling up inside you a covenant-keeping, a covenant-fulfilling, a heavenly kind of husband or wife. He'll give you the help to be able to do this impossible thing that I talked about today. So please believe that. Go to Christ. Trust that the Spirit is there. Trust that the Spirit is in you. Trust that the Spirit is in your spouse. And any time you see a little bit of repentance when you see your spouse being more repentant and you, it surprised you, go, that was Jesus. He sent us his spirit. And my wife is actually starting to submit to me in ways I never saw her do before. Give him the glory and then do it back. And you're on the pathway to the heavenly marriage. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we confess to you we are. Even the things that we, the, the people that we call the good marriages in our society are, are probably really nothing. And so many times we're failing. We're failing to keep promises and covenant. We're incurring curse. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came. To defend us from the curse. To take the curse upon yourself. And to give us power, real power, by your Holy Spirit. To fight and defeat the wickedness of ourselves. To kill this spirit inside of us, this demonic spirit that says, self-centeredness, to kill that, so that marriages can not only just survive, but they can sing and become heavenly. We pray, Lord, we pray that you would give your spirit to every husband and wife in this church, whether they've been married 20 years or for six months. I pray that you would give your spirit to every single person in our church as they walk with married folks and as they prepare their own hearts for marriage one day. And we pray, Lord, that this step, this of repentance to say it's actually more my self-centeredness that's the real problem. If we would even have that thought, that's your spirit. (laughs) And if we would take that step, that's your spirit helping us. And if we would take that step wow, the fight is on, your glory is being manifest and we're winning. We're winning, not losing. And I pray, Lord, that you would gird up our people to take on this hard and crazy fight a fight by ourselves we will most surely lose and then we will curse our own children and our neighbors but a fight that with you jesus we will surely win we honor you we love you only in you is there victory only in you is there wins in our marriage marriages could be completely on the deathbed and I know that there's some people today who are going to hear this message, and they're saying our marriage is about over. But today, would you say it's not over? Huh. That through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can start winning, and there will be an ultimate victory. And we pray, Lord, that we would have the most unbelievable marriages. People would say, "Oh, four years ago, I, <laughs> we were totally failing," but we can't believe what Jesus has done since. And it would change them, it would change their kids, it would change our church, it would change our city. We pray for no less than this. You are worthy, you are worthy to be asked of all these things. We look to you, we honor you. Give us this, give us Jesus, give us his power, and nothing less. In his name we pray.